best sure best does. interview. This this is what I flew out for was this interview. Yeah. So. Welcome to episode 7 of the Spectrum Lounge. Host Rebecca Theodore Bashan speaks with creator, executive producer, and showrunner Cheo Hadari Coker of the Netflix series Luke Cage. Listen to this in-depth discussion about season 2 where they continue their discussion on the use of the N-word, the importance of women directors, and how Cheo ensures a safe working environment for women creatives in light of Time's Up and Me Too movements. Well, it's funny because, <laughs> was that yesterday or a couple of days ago where Kendrick had a concert and some white chick, he invited her on stage and then she was singing his lyrics and she dropped the end bomb. <laughs> yeah. And then he was upset. And what was interesting was kind of seeing the debate playing uh, real time on social media where some people were like, well, maybe if you didn't make them feel so comfortable about saying the worst, you wouldn't have dropped it. Like, there were some people who were, like, critiquing Kendrick. Mm -hmm. Like, you kind of asked for it. Like, what did you think was going to happen? You know what I mean? And well, I was like, mm. I always think about that moment in, in this current season of Atlanta when um, Paperboy performs his song in front of all the, um, I, I think they, they go they go to, like, a Spotify or, like, or like a company, and then, he, and then he's basically performing his song in front of an all-white audience. Right. And there's no call a response and, and he's just up there and he's saying it and it's just like the feeling <laughs> that, that, he, that he gets and then you know that's that's the thing it's like the thing that's interesting about hip-hop and why it should be uncensored mm -hmm. even when you don't like it it's two things first off it's what chuck d says and from the standpoint of it is our cnn it is really a snapshot of what black people are going through at any particular time the second part of it, I think, of course, is I, I see hip hop as a conversation, a private street corner conversation between two black people, which is why it's, whether it's a diss or whether it's this conversation that's being said, it's a conversation that really wasn't necessarily meant for the world. Right. But because of the popularity of the music, that that conversation between, you know, two brothers wolfing at each other and saying, nigga, this, whatever that, now that's worldwide culture. Right. And if you're going to let that depiction be an element of world, of worldwide culture, you have to understand when it leaves the culture and people see it that they might not understand that disconnect of saying, okay, I'm seeing this and I'm, and I'm loving this conversation, but I can't use this word. Right. You know? Yeah. I think Ta-Nehisi, um, he did a, I want to say it was like a panel. It was like an interview. And he... The way he broke it down was so excellent. It was this young white woman who was in the, in the audience, and she was basically asking why white people can't use the N word, right? And then he kind of, yeah, <laughs> that. <laughs> and he used this great analogy, this great um, story, where he was like, "My wife calls me sweetie, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a term of endearment. That's something that my wife and I, because we have an established intimacy and relationship with each other." He was like, "Now, if I walk down the street and some random woman calls me sweetie," It's not the same thing because we don't have that relationship with each other. And I was like, yep. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, because that's really the contradiction of the word because the whole thing is like, if you say, yo, that's my boy versus yo, that's my nigga. There's something about the use of that word that like this, the same way that there's like Hawaiian, there's like 500 words for waves or whatever. Or wow. and with the Eskimos, like they have like 500 different words for snowflake yes. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Nigga has like, 
30 different meanings all based on inflections. You know, the same word can be can mean like 15, 20 different things depending on how it's said. Right. And, you know, that's that's kind of the, the complexity of the word. This is really the first time that um, you're seeing it used constantly within black popular culture in terms of film and television and a mainstream audience mm-hmm. where in going for the authenticity, we now also have to be ready to talk about. Right. Even though as black people, we understand the use of the word. Mm-hmm. If you're going to put it out to, for the worldwide audience, like you, you have to be ready to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't use it. I mean, because the one thing, because that's the thing you have to understand from a Marvel standpoint, they didn't really want to use the word at all. They didn't want the word in there at all. I can imagine. And so <laughs> the thing that I said internally at Marvel Television and just in general, I said, it's more offensive for you to, to tell me that I can't use the word hmm. than me using the word. Right. And so that was the whole thing, right. you know. Like I was shocked that people were even gonna get into the whole respectability politics because they have to understand that there's a reason the F word doesn't exist in the Marvel universe. Oh. Same the same reason why you know smoking cigarettes doesn't exist in the Marvel universe. They very easily with the level of control that they had could have been the same way about the use of that word. But I said, look, I'm going for an authenticity um, of uh, you know in in our experience where like if it feels stilted or they mm-hmm. don't say this. You know, then it's just like, no, we're not doing that. Right, right. Because I remember Misty dropping the N-word. But it felt, but in the context of that scene, it made sense. You know what I mean? I, I just, I didn't flinch. It was just like, oh, hey, she just used it. Well, Makes sense. Well, that was the thing was Simone, um, Simone missing the actress. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she said right before the scene, like, I don't, I don't really want to use it here. And I said, okay. And then, and then, I, and then I talked to Dorian. I said, yo, Dorian, like, yo, do something to piss her off. <laughs> You know, <laughs> by the way, Dorian Missick is Simone Missick's real and, husband. Yeah. yeah, he plays cockroach. And, and so, I love their scenes together. And, and it was so, so funny. And so like, you know, because I, because I saw a certain fire that happened in the in, in the table read mm. when Dorian was just like loving getting under Simone's skin in that way. <laughs> and then, you know, I said, I said, I said, go ahead, man. Just hear a couple of lines that might piss her off. And then, and yeah. Then, and then, boom, all of a sudden that fire came out. Yeah. No, I loved Misty's story arc this season because, and and that's something that I've always loved about Misty from the first season is that she's never been defined by Luke. Like, she has her own, like, sometimes she's his partner and sometimes she's his adversary, but it's never, like, that night that they spent together, it it doesn't define their relationship. You know what I mean? She's not afraid to stand up to him or to, to challenge him. But, oh, can we talk about that fight scene in the bar? With her and Colleen Wing. And I'm like, can we get a Daughters of the Dragon spinoff? Because that, is that what you were going for? Because even the way she wore red and black, I was like, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I know that. I know that outfit. Yeah, it was great. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, when we had that moment, um, of course, we wanted to showcase it in a way that was different than what people saw in The Defenders. Mm -hmm. And it was also the same thing in terms of um, the Power Man and Iron Fist team up in episode 10. Yes. um, in, In Akela Cooper's episode. Was that uh, you know, my 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 arrogance was that okay, people are criticizing Iron Fist, and some people were saying why even have Iron Fist in Luke Cage, and I, and my and my whole thing was like you know what, we're gonna freak it, we're gonna freak it so that by the time you see this, you're gonna completely change your opinion right. about Iron Fist and Luke Cage together, and right. it's gonna be different than the Defenders, it's gonna be different than Iron Fist, mm-hmm. and you know we're gonna restore our Iron Fist swagger. We're we're gonna do it in a way where you know, you're going to see the possibilities of 
you know, what this character could be in this universe. And, right. and, and that was the coolest thing about how episode 10 turned out was like, I think a lot of people are going to be like, oh, man. Now, I'm not, now you told me this, and I was like, because mm. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Iron Fist. Anybody knows that I'm not. But it, I do find it interesting. Um, who was the, the showrunner for The Defenders? Um, um, it was Marco Ramirez. Marco Ramirez. And, and, Laura, and Laura Hisrich. Yes. I found it interesting that it is the two showrunners of color that actually make Danny Rand interesting. Because in Defenders, I was like, okay, I'm not mad at you. And then his episode on Luke Cage, I was like, we should just have people of color write for Danny Rand all the time. All the time. <laughs> because then I think, yeah, that fight scene was fire. And then the song that yeah. you played, that was a Wu-Tang song, right? Yeah. yeah, that was good. I was like, okay. And, and what was interesting to me, too, was that it was sort of a play on a trope because... In a weird way, Danny was Luke's magical white guy, right? Because you know how it is. Like, the yeah. trope is the magical Negro. Like, right. whenever it's the white protagonist who's got it, and it's the black person that comes in with, like, words of wisdom. And then to kind of see that reversal where it was Danny kind of giving Luke advice. It was like, huh. Okay. I mean, but, but that was also the thing was we wanted to even – you know, flip the whole rich white guy things, cause mm. like, but make it real. Like when Danny, when when Luke says the most powerful thing about you is not your glowing fist, and 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 then they're walking in, and and Danny's saying like like what? Like why is nobody attacking us? And he, and he says nobody wants to bust a cap of Steve Jobs, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's one of the only things that gangsters respect is money. Yeah. So like that was what was interesting about that moment was was you know was the way that was captured. So kind of touching on the white privilege, I yeah. think. Because I think if you're gonna if you are gonna do a spin-off or any storyline with Luke and Danny, for you not to talk about that it would just be ridiculous. Kinda reminds me of like the joke they have about uh Batman. They're like that's his superpower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that his rich right guy? <laughs> Which cracks me up. But um, oh, but I did want to ask you because this kind of ties in with the old, the whole conversation about the sexual trauma and the Me Too and the Times Up movement. So as a male showrunner, like you're experiencing, you're seeing all this stuff in real time with Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and all of these powerful uh, men in Hollywood who have abused their power. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you? A, hold yourself accountable, being a person with position and power. Um, and how do you make your sets um, safer for the women that are there? And like, how do you make sure that, um, or, or hold the other men who are accountable, who are under you to make sure that they're respecting the women and respecting their space and that the women feel safe? Because I always feel like a lot of this conversation they're going to the actresses. They're going to the women. Like, what do we need to do about Time's Up and Me Too and sexual harassment? But I'm like, but we're not asking the men? Well, I mean, it's um, transparency and accountability. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I, I think that you have to, with every single interaction, you know, just make sure that things are clear and there's no ambiguity. Right. And, um, you know, it's it's really just, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it's... It's shutting things down the second that one hears something, mm-hmm. one way or the other, mm-hmm. and doing a full investigation or talking about things and really just kind of not just brushing it off or saying, okay, this is something that, that we'll deal with later. Right. It's dealing with it, you know, right then, right now. Um, you know, fortunately, we haven't had any issues of that, you know, on the show, but I think that's important, you know, um, in terms of in general. Right. I mean, you know, moving forward and when people talk about like how, you know, how do we deal with this? And I, I know that people, some people's initial reaction is saying, okay, well, 
if we don't have women around in positions of power, like if we don't have women directing or writing or they're not in the writer's rooms, they're not in these things, then then we'll have less instances of this. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not what Time's Up's about. Right. It's about saying that, you know, we're not going to stand for this anymore. Right. And, you know, and so that's really, um, it's not a threat. It's basically accountability, period. Right. You know? Right. Oh, so let's talk about the women directors you have in season two. Um, how did you pick them? <laughs> and well, tell us a little bit about each of them. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that, like, you know, I'm the grandson of a Tuskegee, of a Tuskegee Airman. I mm-hmm. mean, even this the symbol on my T-shirt is from the 99th Fighter Squadron. My, my grandfather flew for both the 100th and the 302nd. Wow. And the thing is, is that, like, you know, the, the last um, mission um, in the movie Red Tails, the, um, the mission over Berlin, he actually flew on that, on that mission. And also um, in, in combat and war, too, also, you know, won or earned a distinguished flying cross. Mm-hmm. The thing that he always talked about was, like, look, it's like, you know, being one of the first African-American fighter pilots and making history is one thing, but they're shooting at you. And so you don't want to become black history while making black history. Don't forget to fly the plane. Woo. And so the whole thing in terms of how that relates to female directors is like you want people that are passionate about your show and have good taste. Taste, camera placement, and being able to communicate with actors has nothing to do with gender. So you shouldn't regard a actor, or I mean, sorry, a director based on on their gender. You should you should basically look at their stuff and be like, yo, I, I liked what, what you did with the camera. I liked how you were able to communicate with your actors and how you shot a certain scene. Right. You know, those are the most important things. And so some people say, well, okay, if you have female directors, then it's like you're not going to get these brawny shots. And I'm like, you know, half the stuff y'all loved in the, in the trailer. Were you know were the moments that were directed by female directors like you know um, that that Diamondback flip kick mm-hmm. where he lock, he knocks Luke on his ass Sally Richardson <laughs> you know d- d- directed that shot right and was funny because you know the way that it was written in the script and that what we had talked about was that it was just going to be that devastating punch right and then Sally called me from set and was like there's something I want to try. I know that we talked about it being a punch, but I want to go over this thing. Mm. And then you just have to go with your gut. And this goes back to the lesson when you asked me about what do you learn as a showrunner. Right. You say, you know what? I'm going to trust the smart people that I've hired to do what they think is right by the show. And so mm. I said, you know what? Go for it. <laughs> and, that, and, that's where, and that's where the flip kick came from. Right. You know? And so it was one of those moments you see, like, oh, that's what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. You know? Um a lot of the, a lot of the, the other moments um, that you see, I mean, you know, that's the thing. It's like you you can't determine like um, what people are going to do based on their gender. Yeah, that's why I thought it was important. I, I thought you know what Jessica Jones did was groundbreaking in terms of insisting on all female directors. The same way how before you know with with, um, with Queen Sugar, they have yet to have a male director on Queen Sugar, and I don't think they will. You know, <laughs> Ava's like, nope. Um, so my thing was. To continue to break ground, mm-hmm. the one way that people will be dismissive is to say, oh, well, you know, now we have a new ghettoization for female directors. You, you're either going to direct Jessica Jones or Queen Sugar because they're female-driven shows, so here you go. Mm-hmm. As opposed to saying, let's see female directors on a male-driven, brawny, macho show right. and, and show that, again, it has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And so um, the thing is, is that my writing staff has always had um, diversity in terms of color and in terms of, you know, women producers of, 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 of color. 
right. and I, you know diversity in our writers room just just in general of being majority black period mm. and just saying okay that's one thing but let's also make sure that in this season in particular that um, we were able to um, get Lucy Liu and Steph Green and um, you know Millicent Sheldon and Sally Richardson and Casey Lemons as well as Nima Barnett mm-hmm. and really just let them loose right and, and just in terms of being able to each of them having these moments in their episodes that, you know, were just brilliant. Right, right. You so know? let's talk about the music, the musical guests. I always like to think of it like New York Undercover with yeah. Natalie. It was like, who's going to show up this time? So what was uh, what was the strategy or what was the thought of the, the music? Well, um, for season two, it's Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth, right? Uh-huh. So every episode is named after a song. So kind of walk us through the decision to do that and the musical guests that you used for. Well, you know, my influence for naming songs, I mean, episodes after songs, is really my love of Shonda Rhimes. Because oh. as, as a long-term fan of Grey's Anatomy, like mm. Grey's Anatomy episodes are all named after popular songs. You know, a Why lot, am I just finding out about this? Like, like <laughs> a, 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 a lot of them are, you know? Ah. And, um, you know, that's the thing was, like, when I had my first initial pitch at Marvel, um, you know, like, you kind of go through these different levels, and then you finally get to the level where Jeff Loeb's going to be in the room. And I just remember being so nervous. I was Mm. like, the way that I'd messed up pitches before was not being prepared in the standpoint of saying, okay, they might trip me up and say, okay, we like what you want to do with the character now. How would you structure a season? And I didn't want to go into that room empty-handed. So I said, okay, let me think about this. Let me, of course, I I love how they do it on Grace. At the same time, let's also think about, like, just from hip-hop journalism, how we would constantly take song titles and use them for cover lines or use them for headlines mm-hmm. let's kind of think of 13 of these and see if there's any kind of thematic thread that we can thread just based on the titles alone right. not the content of the songs but just like the titles and seeing what they you know what they inspire mm-hmm. and i just just like scrolling through my my you know my infinite um you know itunes <laughs> Because I've got like 20,000 songs mm. and it just like Gangstar just popped up and just constantly wow. like really interesting titles. So I said, let's try this. And then, you know, I was really shocked at how ultimately and, and announcing that at, um, at Comic-Con that people really responded to it. Mm. And then so the same thing happened in terms of season two. It's like, OK, you know, for me, it's like I view show running and I, and I view producing differently than most people do, because for me. It's it's kind of like Mike Coulter's Michael Jackson and I'm Quincy Jones. Hmm. So I'm producing a record, okay. you know, and the whole thing is like the sequencing is like you kind of sequence the album. So it's like I'm picking the song titles and then we're talking up, you know, with a staff, you know, as a writing staff thematically with the journey that Luke is going to take and the characters take. And then kind of arranging the song titles like an album almost. Right. And then building from the inside out instead of saying, okay, let's just build a story and then find songs to fit. Right. You know, you, you do it like, 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 like they did Purple Rain, which is that you write the album first and then you make the drama fit the songs as opposed to making the songs fit the drama. All my, probably to the point where I get some people's nerves. Like, I, I, like the decisions I always make first are the musical decisions. You know, so first you kind of build, out, build that out and then at the same time, you want to use needle drops that are going to kind of reflect the themes of the scripts. And then you're finally going to want to find ways to use the artist that you pick, thematically making it fit into, you know, the narrative. Right. And so um, I handpick every single artist. I, I handpick 
every single song, you know. And then at the same time, Adrian Young and Ali Sheikh Mohammed are making basically bespoke albums for every single episode. Gabe Hilfer and Susan Kent as our music supervisors are the ones that are helping us accomplish all these things on a budget and making sure that everything's cleared and everything is lining up, you know, from a business standpoint. Don Soler at ABC Music is also doing everything from helping out with that process and and then also, of course, helping us afford, a, you know, an orchestra for, for Adrian Ali to, mm-hmm. you know, to do the scoring with. And then the final piece of the puzzle is Michael Brake, who as music editor is sitting with me in the final mix and saying, okay, let's let's raise this stem, let's lower this stem, let's look at every single piece of, of, of how this is going to be portrayed. And for me, the, the frustrated A&R exec, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is my opportunity with every single episode to make an album. And right. so my favorite part of the entire process is final mix for every single episode. And right. so it just all kind of comes together in a seamless way. And so then it allows you to really kind of stretch because, um, for example, like, when Akela wrote episode two, um, knowing that we were going to have a sermon intercut with um, Luke kicking cockroaches' ass, mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted Gary Clark Jr. I just knew that Bright Lights, Big City mm-hmm. was going to be an interesting song to do the intercut with. And so once we were able to get that song and then at the same time also use If Trouble Was Money as really thematically being this moment that we were going to see the ascension of Mariah. That's why one of my favorite shots of the entire season is the shot that Steph Green has coming, you know, out of the club, around the club, finding Gary Clark Jr. And then the camera goes around his neck and then goes up to the balcony where Mariah is watching in full control and kind of grooving to the song and realizing that the song is talking about her. <laughs> you know, and it's it's those moments that, that, right. you, that you find or... You know, having um, Luke and um, Bushmaster fight in the club to the instrumental Jack of Spades, mm. you know, which, of course, is, uh, yes, an homage to I'm going to get you, sucker. But it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's just it's one of those delicious hip hop moments. You right. know what I'm saying? Or finding someone off the Internet like Christian Kingfish, who was a young blues player, just blew me away. Wow. Just, you know, 17 year old kid and just being like. I got to figure out a way. I couldn't get him in this episode season one. I got to figure out the way by season two to get him on the show. Right. And just having that moment, just, you know, how when he did I Put a Spell on You and having it being a commentary of the first time that you really begin to understand the animosity between the Stokes and MacGyvers mm-hmm. in that scene. Or, um, you know, an old friend like Joy, who um, as an artist was, I feel like the, the hip-hop equivalent to Betty Davis and just really an underappreciated artist. I mean, the Pendulum Vibe was one of the first um, albums re- reviewed for Rolling Stone. Mm. And just being able to feature her in the first episode, both uh, new songs and songs from, you know, from her other albums, right. but redone with Adrian Ali and, and the orchestra. Mm. So her, like, I love you forever right now, you know, with the strings and having that moment happen with her. And um, at the same time, I'm not, you know, singing. And then you have that moment where Luke fully admits to Claire that he loves her, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Post Reva, you know, he's never said that. Right. You know, so it's just, you want all these musical moments to fit. I mean, the, what I always say about the show, I say it's basically a bulletproof version of Lemonade. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just one big concept album with dialogue. Right. You know, um, because one of the whole ideas, one of the ideas that I had, that I even got about binge watching is that binge watching is really the equivalent of what we have now, back in the day, if Prince dropped Sign of the Times or Prince drops Love Sexy, you know, you waited in line at Tower Records, you went, you got your CD, you went home, turned out the lights, played the record, 
two times and then got on the phone with your friends mm-hmm. and talked about it. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the only time that we do that is, is we, we binge and we, right. and we watch a show and then, and then tweet about it or talk about it. And so it made me realize, particularly when Beyonce dropped her first self-titled you know, video concept album experience out of like fully grown like Athena out of Zeus's head, like bam, mm-hmm. you know, here it is. That was to me was my first binge. Not even a show was was that was that album. Like wow. when she dropped that album with the videos and that that was a binge. And so it made me, it made me realize, okay, wait a minute. So Beyonce season two is Lemonade. <laughs> so <laughs> so okay, taking right. that take, taking that example because that because the first one came out before Luke Cage. Yes, the, the really the self titled Beyonce record. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the thing. Like let's do this like a concept album. Boom. And then, and then if Lemonade is kind of the sequel, then for me, season two of Luke Cage really has to be about, okay, what are the best sophomore hip-hop albums? What are the albums that basically redefined, you know, an artist? So, like, for the Beastie Boys, it was Paul's Boutique. Right. For A Tribe Called Quest, it was Low End Theory. For Outkast, it's AT Aliens. Right. For the Fugees, it's The Score. For, uh, you could almost, even though it's not technically the second Wu-Tang album, only Bill for Cuban Links was the first record that dropped after, um, you know, Enter the 36 Chambers. So to me, it's almost like a sophomore record and redefined mm-hmm. Wu-Tang sound. So you always want to find these moments and, you know, where you familiarize yourself with what you think something's going to be and you, and you raise the stakes. Right. And that's really entirely what season two of Luke Cage is about. Mm-hmm. It's about not messing up the good things that we did. Right. But upping the stakes emotionally, musically, and visually in ways that people might not have expected because they, they'd written us off after seven episodes. Right. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the last scene. Because okay. <laughs> I, I was just so in my feelings because it was like, that's how you do a season finale. Right. Because to me, it was just like the camera placement and the the dialogue. Well, actually, there wasn't a lot of dialogue, which is what I appreciated. It really felt like it was a chessboard where you see there's a lot, at least for me, I felt like there was a lot of foreshadowing, right? Like first starts out with uh, Misty and Luke, right? Mm-hmm. Because Luke decides he's going to be the boss, right? Mm-hmm. And so Misty comes in and he's sort of like, yeah, you can keep me honest. And then Sugar comes in and he was like, yeah, you can go. Well, <laughs> so well, we already see that there's going to well, be some drama between them. Well, first thing is, is uh-huh. that when Sugar comes in earlier in the episode, mm-hmm. it's the first time Luke ever really fully lies to lies to Misty when she says oh, wow. when she says to him, "Hey, you know, you know, have you seen Sugar?" and he's like, "Nah." And mm-hmm. then when Sugar walks in and and all of a sudden does the valet thing, right. and she sees that, she's like, "I can't believe this dude lied to me." <laughs> And it's undercutting everything that he said about I'm gonna be high, and, you know, I can look up from on high, and you're gonna keep me honest. And, mm-hmm. then, and then we, of course, straight up stole the shot from Godfather One when the door closes on Kay. Oh. That's when you look back at that shot of the door closing on Misty, right. and the fact that you know the minion kind of while Luke is being whispered to sitting at the desk, and the minion walks up and closes the door on her. That's a straight up Godfather lift, right? You know, right. And then you finally get to this moment. Um, it was really interesting being on set because. Both Marvel and Netflix said, okay, when when Luke is on the perch, mm-hmm. he should be conflicted like you had in the script. Right. Mike Coulter decided, you know what? I'm not playing that. Like, Rakim is rapping about me. I'm going to enjoy this moment because I really feel like I would. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't stop him because the thing was, was Mike was right. 
<laughs> and what was fascinating, what was scary about it was like, he, when you, particularly when you go back and you go back to the pilot, when you go back to episode one and you see Mahershala up there listening to, to um, Good Man. Right. And now you look at Luke Cage on the perch in the suit, the three-piece suit, you know, and how he's feeling himself. You're like, yeah. oh my God, like may, maybe... Maybe this isn't gonna gonna work out the way that that we thought it was, mm-hmm. um, and it's one of these moments that makes you say, immediately after you finish episode thirteen, I might need to go all the way back to episode one of Luke Cage because maybe I I didn't even really know this dude. Right. You know, it's one of those things that really just makes you just kind of unpack and be like, man, like mm-hmm. this is crazy. And then really the key moment is when he says. You know, tell Claire to go home. Yes, that was that's when I knew we were in trouble. Cause up until then, yeah, I think he was. I was feeling like maybe he was a little conflicted, but because Claire is basically his conscience, she's yeah. the one that tells him you're going over the line. And for him to tell her to go home, I was like, oh, he's up to no good. <laughs> well, and then also, you know, the thing is, is that it was also very full circle because the first voice of season one is Reggie Caffey. Mm-hmm. The last voice, I'm sorry, the first voice of season two is Reggie Cathy. Right. The last voice of season two is Reggie Cathy. Mm-hmm. So it really kind of brought the entire thing full circle. Right. And we did that, um, actually, that decision was made before Reggie passed away. Oh. And um, I went to his memorial yesterday, and it was really just such a beautiful outpouring of all of his friends and family, you know, having this moment of celebrating his life. And the thing was that got me, my greatest regret is that... Um, you know, Reg never got to see his performance because his his performance, I think, is just so incredible. Oh, it is. Yeah. I, I just, I really just can't wait for everybody to see it because he's so alive in this on 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 this series that mm. I, you know, it's really I think a nice send off to a certain extent. Right. But he didn't play it like that because he certainly didn't know that he was that he was dying. He he wasn't diagnosed until. Um, toward, until really that last episode he filmed, you know. Oh, wow. And so it was one of those moments where I'm just so happy that we got to work with him because he's such a great guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, Tilda walking into the club. Yeah. I, I love that she had, her whole look was sort of like an homage to the nightshade in, in the comic books. And then the other one, too, was that I was looking at Misty in that scene, the way her hair was styled. And I was like, why does that, you can tell me if that was intentional or not, because I know Simone had said that she was named after Nina Simone. I remember Nina Simone had her hair kind of styled like that. Was that an intentional choice or was that? It, it might have been from, from Simone's standpoint. Okay. You know, um, you know but if it's at the same time, there's that moment. There's, like like you said, when she when, when um, Gabrielle walks through the double doors. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, man, like nightshade. Like, yeah. here she is for real. Like, we, right. we've built all season for this. Mm-hmm. And that last tracking shot where... We have Rakim on stage, and then at the same time, we're really setting the stage, knock on wood, if we get a season three of, right. of all of who all the potential players are going to be, and then finally going up to the perch with Luke Cage. Right. You know, it's one of those moments that I just think is just such a satisfying ending mm-hmm. for the season, and that was one of the reasons why I felt it was really important for us to release all 13 episodes of press, because... I felt like the press wasn't going to give us the benefit of the doubt. They were going to be like, well, you know, this would be an asterisk. Like, yo, <laughs> you know, it's up, it's good up to this point. But we remember what happened last time. Right, you know? right. So that's why I felt it was really important that uh, we do all 13. Right. So with Mariah, um, the decision to – so what, what – so the decision for Tilda – to kill her own mother like what kind what thought went into that and and just that potion what was that okay 
kiss of the kiss of the spider, kiss of death. Oh. The whole the whole thing was that um, it really it really was earning it. That's why the scene in episode nine when she admits um, that she didn't love Tilda mm. was important because you had to have this emotional moment of of clarity. You had to have another moment at, at the end of episode eleven when she goes to her mom and saying, "Did you really do this?" And she says, "Yeah, I, I you know I dropped the goddamn match." And then you have that final moment where she, after Alex gets killed, that she says, you know what, I got to be the one to take her out. Right. And then you almost forget about the, that real dramatic, you broke my heart, Fredo kiss between them. Mm. Until you finally get to the moment where she says Tilda, and then you have that moment. And then all of a sudden, like, oh my God, it really was Tilda that killed her. Right. You know. And then even if you listen to the lyrics of Gabrielle's song, there's a subtle twist in the second verse where you know, you know, this thing must come to an end mm-hmm. or has come to an end. So she's already, when she's singing, when she sits down at the piano and really takes her cousin's mantle of being, you know, wanting his place in Harlem's Paradise and playing, you know, his keyboard. Right. It's really kind of an ascension for her of, of accepting the fact that she is now going to be, you know, this villain. Mm. Um, all these things kind of play into this. And then, you know, the thing was, was like, Alfred and I are really close. And I, and I just made, I said, look, I mean, where we're going, there's no coming back. And she's saying, she's like, yo, I'm like, I'm with it. Like, mm. if, if if you're gonna do this, let's go for it. And the last thing I'll say because we're, you know, I know our time's coming to an end. No, no pun intended. <laughs> is that um, we got on, we got on set, we filmed that final death scene. Yeah. And we just, Alfred didn't like the line I'd written where where she just kind of dies. She says, I need to say something else. And then just like ad lib, just between the two of us, she's, you know, she said, you know, you know, we ain't done yet. <laughs> was that for you? <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, it was just it just fit, and then we just tried it, and then it just worked, and it, right. just, and it stuck, and then it really haunted us because mm. of knowing that, and then when we finally get to that revelation of why she leaves the club to Luke, it's just like, oh, that's a great twist. Yeah. That's a great twist. Yeah, because I, I loved how you saw the lawyer saying one thing to Luke. Meanwhile, Mariah is telling him something else. Yeah. Like, yeah, she's setting him up. Well, because the story of the sirens, I think, is an important one. You know, because I always loved the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And also, my uncle, Richard Wesley, who, you know, who taught me everything I know about screenwriting, he wrote Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again. Oh. One, of, one of his plays was called The Sirens. So it was just kind of like a shout out to my uncle to a certain extent. Oh. But at the same time as it was, like, the illusion as to how what happens with the club could potentially uh, change Luke for the worse because he's like Michael Corleone. He's, you know, there's no delusion like self delusion. Mm-hmm. You can't change the game because nobody changes the game. The game changes you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chael. We need uh, a season three. Hopefully so. You know, I, I got kids that, that, that got three kids that need to go to college. So, <laughs> so please watch the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Spectrum Lounge. You can find Cheo Coker on Twitter at Cheo underscore Coker. You can also find our host, Rebecca Theodore Vachon, on Twitter at FilmFatale underscore NYC. Season two of Luke Cage is currently streaming on Netflix. You can help support the Spectrum Lounge by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash film vital underscore nyc intro and outro music to this episode is courtesy of nstens 1117 on youtube thank you for listening until next time